0: Did I tell you about using Calendly?
1: Yeah, I'm the one that put you on it.
0: No, did I tell you about it in the context of teaching? No. This is Making It Up, episode 184, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Macon, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals.
1: Making it Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex intertwined world we live in.
0: We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us.
1: Making Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash For Discord access, shop discounts, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's get into it.
0: Man, I really wish we were sponsored by Calendly because literally what I'm about to say is going to be like the best Calendly plug. So I needed a system for setting up meetings with my students and Eugene put me onto Calendly. I'm completely prepared to give you credit. Calendly is a service that allows you to put in your availability and then send a link to people and they can make bookings for you based off of, yeah, auto-generated, connects to the calendar of your choice, sends you an email confirmation, sends them an email confirmation. They can cancel via Calendly. You can set up different meeting types, like 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, and it all syncs together. Literally, this is like the best ad rate. So I decided to try out using Calendly with my students because I have multiple classes of students and I did not want to be stuck in exactly the terrible situation of where you're emailing a bunch of people back and forth, trying to figure out what time works for them and you. And instead I send all of them the same Calendly link and it is working like a dream.
1: What's funny is Calendly as a concept isn't n- entirely new as a mechanism. It used to exist under a different company called Sunrise, that got bought by like Microsoft, somebody big. Basically, it's interesting
0: like, it's, historical information. Well, I mean,
1: I've I've always recognized that scheduling calendars like it's always a wasted extra one or two email correspondence that maybe could be avoided.
0: Even you even, don't need literally wow, my situation. I you're am passionate, passionate. because a situation in which I use Calendly, you do not need to have an email conversation. Because they are only meeting me for essentially one reason, that they want to talk about their project or their schoolwork that yeah. is currently happening. My hours are super fixed in terms of school because it's the Good office job. hours that are around classes, right? Yeah. So when I'm not in classes, when I'm not at lunch, I have office hours. Th- this is so my, I'm like yeah. the best case scenario for like use of calendar. This is
1: my little pro tip. Thank you. When I don't use calendar, or when you're trying to figure something out in a group, Don't just give like one time, give like three or five times or ranges.
0: I'm with you. Also, this is my (laughs) other pro tip. If you are in a situation where you need to send an email, don't say what time works for you. Don't say what time works for you and not give any options. Always open with two to three options. And if they don't work for them, then they will propose an alternative. Yep. Good opener. Scheduling tips—that's what people need. And
1: I, yeah, honestly, when I started using Calendly recently, it was actually like such a such a relief. I don't like no one enjoys trying to find time.
0: No, and it works across time zones. Yeah. Hey, if you work at Calendly, get in touch. Yo, I'm gonna send this to Calendly.
1: (laughs) Or maybe when we post this, you should tag Calendly. I will sponsor us on Twitter and Instagram.
0: Good idea. Good idea. Get us that ad money for a product I really genuinely love using.
1: All right, let's get into it. So a bit of a special one. Today's topic we felt was sufficiently meaty. meaty.
0: That's the word Eugene used. Meaty.
1: That we only need to do one topic.
0: I have strong feelings.
1: About this topic?
0: I don't have strong feelings about whatever your stance is. Because in a rare instance, I did not have the time to read your notes. So I don't know what your stance is. I do have strong feelings about the article itself.
1: Yeah, you know what? I'm actually, I'm going to give you a synopsis because it's quite a long piece, is how the shifting cultural landscape in both the world, woke culture and sport has significantly changed the course of Nike, or at least will begin to materialize in in a changing direction for the company. Kind of the lay of the land. I think we should just jump into it and kind of get a little bit into the article and discuss some key points within it. But it
0: was a short summary.
1: You want me a little longer?
0: No, let's right. do key points.
1: Yeah. So basically for Ethan, he starts off by talking about how he got into soccer slash football by his friend Carlos, who had spent time between Guatemala and San Francisco. And for Carlos, his way of educating Ethan around football, I'm going to stick with soccer. You gonna stick with soccer? I think it's just easier, just like no cognitive dissonance when like you're listening. It's like, oh, okay, soccer. Anyways, okay. I don't like to. I would I w- go football, but if you know, if you don't
0: think the majority of our listeners understand football over soccer,
1: I don't know. I mean, we have a lot of North American listeners.
0: I'm fine either right. way. You got, you just got to commit.
1: All right, soccer. So Carlos would. Educate Ethan not by showing him clips and highlights and games, but rather by showing him advertisements. And one of the dominant advertising forces back in the day, and I guess like they still are to a degree, is like Nike.
0: But even more iconic then yes. than now.
1: And a lot of the ads that Nike's done over the years, whether it's soccer or basketball, or whatever, they're super iconic. Like I still remember quite vividly those advertisements. And it's quite interesting because The jumping off point for this article actually does come down to advertisements and the style advertisements, which in the eyes of Ethan, are maybe like a reflection of where the brand's going, which makes total sense, right? Like the advertisements and the messaging are indicative of where you want your brand to go or how you want your brand to be perceived.
0: Sure. Yeah. Throughout the piece, he does punctuate with YouTube videos of different Nike ads through the years.
1: I didn't even watch them. I like kind of knew exactly which ones they were. Well, because which is you're so tapped no, in. But that's saying, I had to iconic, rewatch
0: all of them. That's how
1: iconic they are to me anyways, right? To Eugene. Yeah. Like that's what I'm saying. that I, That's the impact of these ads.
0: I was just pointing out that you are correct that there's sort of a guiding structure of following Nike ads through the 90s to now. Quite
1: early on to the conversation, Ethan sort of puts his flag in the in the ground and says, Modern Nike ads will never be so remembered. It's not because we're so inundated with information these days, though we are. It's not because today's overexposed athletes lack the mystique of the 1990s superstars, though they do. It's because the modern Nike ads are beyond fucking terrible. And then he (laughs) offers this explanation. They're bad for many causes, but one in particular is an incongruity at the company's heart. Nike, like so many major institutions, is suffering from what I'll call existence dissonance. It's happening in a particular way for a particular reason, and the result is that what Nike is happens to be at a cross-purposes from what Nike aspires to be, right? So I like
0: the terminology of existence dissonance. Maybe, but it's because it sounds good.
1: He goes on to reference something from Sarah Germano of the Financial Times, and she shares this really strong passage that sums up Nike's state of affairs. It's been a tumultuous period for Nike, says Trevor Edwards, the former brand president of the company who left in 2018 it is so based on passion for sport passion for the nike brand and that passion is starting to dissipate internally the result is one of the most challenging moments in the company's history it must contend not only with a radical shift in retail strategies but also the wider cultural reckoning with the intersection of race gender and power in interviews with current and former employees industry leaders consumers and retail partners Divisions emerge over how to tackle such issues while remaining true to the spirit that has set the brand apart from other sportswear manufacturers. One question looms above the rest. Is it the end of an era for Nike? And Trevor Edwards is worth mentioning because he left on not so good terms from Nike. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't have like- There a- was
0: a bit of a dust up internally in Nike. A lot of- female employees collectively took it to leadership to say, hey, there are all of these instances of sexism, abuse, just a whole variety of examples where things were going on in Nike that shouldn't be going on. And as a result, I don't know the fine points of, you know, what Trevor Edwards in particular, any individual leader was accused of, but The result was that several people in leadership positions left.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard of stuff, you know, and it's primarily as though you took locker room talk and locker room behavior and culture and brought it into a corporate setting. Yeah. That's basically what it is, right? I
0: mean, it is unsurprising to me. And Nike is not the only company in the last couple of years that has had such things come out of the woodwork. So I wouldn't say like, oh... Nike is particularly at fault uniquely because of their their nature as a company. However- Because Strauss kind of makes that argument.
1: Yeah, like Nike though, as a company, was built off a certain foundation. And that foundation itself, one thing I think is worth mentioning is that for Nike itself, the behavior is not excused. However, the context in which this behavior was formed Comes from a culture of sport, which for the longest time has been of a certain, I guess, masculine approach. I don't, I, it's actually really hard because I think masculinity as we know it is changing. But I think that if you look at this context of locker room talk or just like how a bunch of dudes behave when you put them together on a team, it's actually quite a unique proposition because I could see how. When your goal is to win, taking that winning mentality and then injecting it into a corporate slash brand environment in some ways can be galvanizing and it can bring a certain level of success, which is what you kind of see with Nike, right?
0: I can see how Nike's foundation resulted in that environment at Nike, but just observing other industries and seeing how the same stories have cropped up in. Hollywood and banking and law firms and media. It's just, to me, the old definition of masculinity and those behaviors are not exclusively, you know, relegated to sports, but is prevalent across all industries. That's a good point.
1: Yeah. There's this one passage from Ethan that is really powerful. For all the talk of racial reckoning within major industries, Nike's main problem is this. It's a company built on masculinity, most specifically Michael Jordan's alpha dog brand of it. Now, due to its own ambitions, scandals, and intellectual trends, Nike finds masculinity problematic enough to loudly reject. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on, on this in general? And like, it's funny because we've talked about sports quite a bit in the last few weeks. Yeah, a lot I'm lately. I'm not sure why. Why and is that? It feels as though sports has become this really interesting... Intersectional point that I think at some point in time sports actually kind of lost its way because it was overshadowed by music, in my opinion, right like I think that you looked at the the eras of the Kanyes and the Drakes, and those people were arguably at the top of the visibility food chain, and I think that some somehow some way like the very active sports has sort of reemerged
0: i mean some shifts are natural, like some things it's just a pendulum of now music seems interesting, now Hollywood seems interesting, now sport seems interesting. So I'm not sure I can say why there's an emergence, but definitely we've been talking about it more. In terms of the quote you read from the Financial Times, I do find it concerning, and I feel like we will talk about this again, that the people internally at Nike are not passionate about sport itself. And this is me responding to thinking about branding and a company's shifting trajectory versus so much this question of like masculinity. Because yeah. I think sport, regardless of gender, is like critical to Nike as a brand. Yeah. And to I later on Strauss says like it seems internally mostly it's marketers and Th- liberal point, arts interests.
1: This is a point I wanted to bring up too is that I think sport and activity are two overlapping but different things. Like, I think sport necessitates competition, but activity does not. Like, you and I can go play soccer together, and we do it as an activity to get exercise, whatever. But I think sport fundamentally changes because there's a layer and component of competition. There's something about sport. For me, this is why I was always so passionate about sport, because, because for someone who's generally... Pretty emotionally dead for the most part, like I don't really have a lot of emotions. I only really derive emotions when I play sports because of the competitive nature of it and I think it's something that's able to draw something out of you and I was I was thinking about this a lot because in some ways I take for granted the people I've met through sport because like it just was part of my life, but at the same time, like a lot of my best friends or a lot of people I talk to on the regular we've all been united by sport and by competition and not solely just winning but the the pain of losing actually is just as important as like the the feeling of winning together or accomplishing a goal together and getting 5 11 guys on the same on the same page to accomplish a goal.
0: I mean this brings me to my response to that second quote you read about being built on masculinity and Jordan's quotations alpha dog brand of it. And I am of the opinion that you can still have competition and an alpha dog mentality without the asshole masculinity part. Like this is one of my main strong feelings about this piece is this equivalence that I see in Strauss's writing. Between competitiveness and masculinity, and I take offense at that I because think, I think that you can be extremely competitive without having to be equated to any definition of masculinity.
1: you can, but I think that there has to be some sort of laser focus to like win within the boundaries of the rules and so yeah, but that's that not
0: exclusively you, masculine,
1: yeah, I mean I think that that's why I think it was hard for me to understand like the the traits of masculinity versus the traits of winning i
0: think think winning is a good thing to have at nike and in sports
1: yes winning is important yeah but i think winning is being conflated with masculinity
0: i see that in this writing
1: but you disagree otherwise i disagree that it has to be
0: conflated
1: i think the general norm like a general expectation in discussion is that winning and masculinity are two things that go hand in hand and being always right and I don't think, I think that's, that's
0: very unfortunate.
1: It's unfortunate, but I, I just think that's the reality of it. When I look at sport, it's hard for you to curtail and pull back on certain behaviors because no one is able to 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 dictate how far or how little you want to push yourself to win. Like mm-hmm. if I'm going to engage in a, in a game with you or a competition of basketball, you can't really tell me how little or how much to try or how serious to take it. So that's why I think in, in that context, that's why it's like, it's so hard. It's either you you aim to win or you, you know, like it's hard for you to dial that down.
0: Yeah. Well, why would I tell you to do less?
1: But I think that that's where doing less in in itself deprioritizes winning, which is the fundamental root of sport. Yeah. Right? And I think by, by deprioritizing it, what you're doing is like that sort of asshole behavior or you know, win at all costs goes out the window. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that you cannot really have sport without winning.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I agree. If I you just want to I...
1: win, you also cannot ask someone to dial up or dial down. Because if you're engaged in the act of sport, more, more often than not, you go out to win.
0: Yeah. No, I still agree. But I think you can also push for winning without being an asshole.
1: Yeah, you can. But yeah. some people, if, if that's how they need to turn up another notch, and that's how they do it, like, I sent you that clip, and I was like, watch this clip. It was from the last dance. Yeah, let's so, talk about it. Yeah, we should probably play it. You asked all my teammates? The one thing about Michael Jordan was, he never asked me to do something that he didn't fucking do. When people see this, yeah, they're going to say, well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. Oh, well, that's you, because you never wanted anything. I wanted to win, but I wanted them to win and be a part of that as well. I don't have to do this. I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Break. Like for me, when I watch that Michael Jordan he doesn't ask me
0: to do anything that he doesn't fucking do.
1: (laughs) When I watch that Michael Jordan quote, I think a lot of emotions run through myself because I'm like, yeah, I I totally get it. I totally get that. Obviously, I'm not even I'm not an athlete on Michael Jordan's level, but the very the very sentiment of going out and like fighting for each other, you know, battling, everyone is equal, although obviously not equal in skill, but equal in intent and effort like those are things that i think are so critical towards sport which is i think something that when you when you remove that and people get passes like a pass to like not do something that's when you're altering the sort of the the whole makeup of sport
0: i still agree that this is important to sport being exciting and that is very much less exciting if there is no winning or losing or pushing people to win I feel like we do need to explain why are we talking so much about, like, this idea of competitiveness and wanting to win in connection to an idea of masculinity. Because Strauss continues in his piece to talk about Nike moving away from telling this type of story of this story similar to Jordan and stories that are winning focused because, according to Strauss's analysis... They are concerned about being overly masculine mm-hmm. and moving away from that towards something that is more quotation marks woke.
1: Yeah. Well, so it goes back to my previous discussion point, which was like, you might not agree that winning and masculinity are two in the same, but I think the general populace does think that they're quite similar. Or at, which at least is people why. at Nike
0: think they are. Based off of their ads, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we can deduce, that the executives at Nike are concerned about appearing overly masculine and their strategy to not appear overly masculine is to de-emphasize winning, which I think is piss-poor strategy. Okay, now
1: let's... There's actually a great segue into this next bit. Go for Um, it. Yeah. So there's this next bit here that discusses why these changes are happening and to a degree it's a business change. So he goes on to talk about this idea called the undecided whale. The idea is that a company, as it aims to grow more expansive, starts catering less to the locked-in core customer and more to a potential whale which demonstrates some interest. Sure you can just keep doing what's made you rich, but how can you even focus on your primary business with that whale out there swimming so tantalizingly close? The whale should you bring it in, has the potential to enrich you far more than your core customers ever did. And yeah, 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 a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, but those were birds. This is a damn whale. And so you start forgetting about your base, which is in many ways, this is indicative of almost all like publicly traded companies to an extent where they always need to develop new products, new product lines, divisions to capture more and more revenue. So this is not a concept that's unique to Nike. However, this is for you to push back and say that this whale client, this whale demographic of females don't care about winning. And that's for you to kind of like identify if you think that's true or not. I mean, if Nike thinks that f- this masculinity, well, I, I guess- to Should a degree, I
0: say that I'm smarter than the people in Beaverton? Many, many people sitting over there in the Nike offices, like I won't, right? But
1: you did call it a piss-poor strategy.
0: Well, cause... in my humble opinion... <laughs> All right, as... you're walking it back. No, I, stick, I stand by my opinion. But, okay, they must have... Re- I can only assume that at the scale of Nike, they have done research and collected data and the numbers indicate to them that they should go after the whale of the female market. And I assume that they have also done user testing, focus groups, et cetera, to determine that what appeals to this whale are these ads, I could be wrong about my assumptions. Maybe they have done none of that.
1: I would look at the generational shift we see right now where exclusivity has kind of gone off to the wayside because exclusivity and winning are similar, right? Like there can only be a handful of winners, but if you look at where we are today, you, you, you're:
0: I'm making a huge face because I'm not so sure that exclusivity and winning are non-compatible.
1: You, Sorry, exclusivity it wasn't in itself
0: winning. I don't think that winning has to promote a message of exclusivity.
1: There can only be at most three people on the podium.
0: Yes, but it's aspirational.
1: But I think aspiration, what I'm trying to say is that we've now shifted away from a world where it's more about us aspiring to be the winner and more about us participating collectively. And you see that in the way brands are built now. Even high fashion brands are now moving away from the fact that like you aspire to buy this handbag and it's actually about let's find ways to get everyone involved.
0: That's different though. No,
1: I think it's quite similar. No, but it's, it's actually quite similar. The
0: strategy there makes more sense because there isn't like a clear demarcation of a winner in luxury. But whereas like in sport, there is a no, winner win- of a race.
1: The winner in luxury is the one that has ownership of it. Like I am winning because I'm holding this product that you cannot have though.
0: But so many people can hold the product. Relatively you, there speaking, There can yes, only no. be one gold medal winner of the 100 meter sprint at the Olympics. Literally one person Correct. in but the then world. You can break that okay. down into
1: sub competitions like the, the soccer league in your city, the basketball league. Like what I'm trying to say is that we actually now probably care less about winning. We care more about a group participation. And I think that's where we're headed, where it's like, In some ways, the softening stance and the the demasculinization of Nike has pushed it actually to be a bit more around the world of, like, participation. You know what I mean? Especially some of the ads. No. Okay.
0: Okay. There are things I agree with you on, and then there are things that I disagree with. But I, I agree about what you're pointing out, that in terms of this current attitude and atmosphere, people are focused on group participation collaboration community those types of themes however when it comes to sports i still think that i agree with Strauss in the sense that it's not great advertising and oh, it's totally, not good totally. for nike
1: because there's no there's no sort of friction there's no sort of like that yeah. sort of you remember we talked about that a few a few episodes ago about the the story arcs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's yeah. from the get-go set up as being like happy, positive, there's, there's no yeah,
0: there's no tension. There's exactly. no rise or fall. All right. This goes nowhere. It's plateau. The part the point that I disagree with is again that connection that is being made between masculinity and competitiveness. Yes. That's my main uh disagreement, is that it's tied closely together. And you said well, maybe you and I stand sitting here can see that competitiveness can be in men and women and is not exclusively masculine. Mm-hmm. And you argue that actually in the general populace's view, competitiveness is still tied to masculinity. Yes. And my argument, having done no research sitting here, is that I disagree and that yeah. competitiveness can be viewed universally. I, I would still think, I, I, I look at these ads and... I don't actually, I personally, I know this is anecdotal, but I don't see like Ronaldo winning and feel off-put by it, like I'm being excluded. Like I still have that sense of mm-hmm. feeling like, ah, that's aspirational. I should go, you know, buy sports gear and try harder. Mm-hmm. So I don't, maybe, an, maybe I'm an outlier is what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. So Nike strategy, um, should we kind of vaguely, or not vaguely, specifically, but there's like a couple of, contemporary nike ads that maybe we should try to describe so that people get a sense of what these campaigns yeah, have been about
1: sure there's one ad that i saw i don't know of all the ads you watch which one stood out the most to you there's one that i watched with marcus rashford who is a striker forward for the english national team for soccer football. is this
0: one of the new ones
1: it's one of the newer ones it's from i want to say 2021 actually but anyways What's really interesting about this piece is that it leverages a personified ball that has like a
0: talking, ah, a
1: talking that mouth. one, yeah,
0: and I, I remember. I just don't know who Marcus Rashford oh, yeah, is. Yeah. That's so, probably why it didn't. So basically,
1: if you watch it and you're any in any shape or form familiar with English football culture, soccer culture, oh, it, if you're familiar <laughs> with English soccer <laughs> culture, this is such a stereotypical view of how you know an old school older school soccer fan is like there's a lot of things that you need to be a lot of traits you need to have to to win and a lot of it's like comes down to greed like be greedy and score the goal yourself right and i found that really interesting because that was actually pointed out in the comments like oh it's interesting because the tonality of it the conversational or i guess the words the script was textbook hyper-masculine, right? And it was also, like, a, I, I'm, I'm not that good identifying, you know, posh and, like, working class. Oh, British, yeah. I saw English in the accents. comments that
0: someone said it was like int- intentionally, like, working class accent. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah, so that in itself also plays into, like, stereotypes and whatnot. But I, that one actually was, I thought, quite interesting, quite good, because basically at the end of it, they have Marcus Rashford do a kick-up, which is basically, like, just lifting yeah. the ball in the air. And he's really chill. And... That's sort of a pushback against the quote-unquote toxic toxic masculinity within soccer.
0: That one was one of the more all right ones in the new wave of campaigns. The one that I did think was astoundingly bad and even in poor taste to women as well was best day ever. Did you watch this one? Yeah, I've seen that one, yeah. So Best Day Ever is this Nike ad where the narrator hypothetically narrates this imagined future where impossible things happen that are all amazing and like 95% of them have to do with women seceding in sports. But the degree at which they are impossible or possible is like of such a wider variety. Like one is like a tennis champ launches her own video game, which is a totally realistic thing that's probably already happened. And then another one is like, a woman runs a marathon on Mars, which is impossible for years still, right? And the the tone of it was annoying to me because I felt like I don't even think female athletes would you know, paint their hypothetical best future ever in this way where it's like exclusively about female triumphs. And then yeah. also the fact that it's meant to be like this impossible future when actually these are real things that are taking place.
1: Like, I think this is a, a really important distinction in conversation is that there's also comments made that certain Nike ads denigrate. Mm like, male, like, sport, sporting achievements. Yeah. And that. Now, which is, to me, I don't think it needs to be like that. No, I think precisely. It needs to be like, like in, all... in
0: this ad, they say um, that the WNBA surpasses the NBA in popularity. I don't think anyone in the WNBA would say that that's what they want. Like, that's not it's... their dream either. Yeah. And it's weird to me that Nike thinks, oh, what it will appease the whale of the female market is if we put down yes. male athletes. Yeah, yeah. Which I feel like is denigrating to both male athletes and sporting fans as well as women athletes yeah. and sporting like fans. Like value, both part like
1: everyone. Like your value is only decided if you are able to vanquish.
0: Yeah. 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 And you know, in the comments there was another argument as well that on top of these um non-sporting focused overly politicized messaging the storytelling quality also seems to have gone down which i also strongly agree like there was someone in the comments who said you know masculinity or femininity aside the ads just seem worse
1: yeah one thing i do want to talk about as we wind this thing down is the just inherent challenge of running a brand like nike is massive obviously it's still the world's biggest sporting brand yet here they are needing to tackle something that honestly it's out of their control like culture society everything is moving a certain way they can either choose to not participate which in the past because for whatever reason it just you know these trends and these movements were less pronounced they could just sort of like step aside and do their thing But now it seems that if the expectation is around needing to participate and have a point of view, it changes like obviously the Colin Kaepernick stuff, right? All part of the discussion and there's always this discussion around starting and like maintaining a hundred year old brand like a Coca-Cola. Yeah. And it's so much harder now. It's honestly crazy because it's not to say Coca-Cola hasn't gone through its own ups and downs, but. I mean, at, a, at its core, it's a very simple product, right? Much simpler than Nike. It doesn't even Nike. really need to have any political leaning because it just exists as a junk food. Yeah. Like Lay's. They just chips. don't
0: need to do something dramatically wrong, is what I think about Coca-Cola. Yeah. But another straightforward brand that you would have thought had an easy time selling their product is Gillette. The razor company, yeah. which... I think in 2018 or 2019 also came under fire for a very tone deaf ad about masculinity that had close to zero to do with the actual product of razors. And many people said nobody needs a razor brand to be political. Yeah, And yet yeah. here they are struggling to position themselves in that way.
1: I've definitely changed my stance on the role of politics within like brands and whatnot. because. I think if you recall, maybe maybe you do, maybe you don't, but I think my stance over the course of last two years used to be like, oh yeah, you have to be super political. You need to like differentiate yourself with your stance. And now it's almost difficult because you have to ensure you're on the right side of the political stance of your demographic, which might potentially run counter to your POV or whatnot. Like sometimes it's just like you can still find ways to interact with somebody on a shared point of view. It just doesn't always have to be everything political.
0: I remember these conversations because we were on different sides of it. You, in my recollection, were of the opinion that brands, not just pro-politics, but that brands taking a stance on important issues beyond what they're selling is good because they have this power and this platform to make real change. And I was of the opinion that people should not have any expectation of brands to do anything more than to sell their product. And to place a trust in them to care about climate crisis or Black Lives Matter or the women's equality movement is misplaced. And that is not where we should be looking. And so I don't have an expectation that brands would communicate that.
1: One thing that definitely changed my mind was that the amount of stuff you had to keep track of changed significantly yeah like the number of topics yeah and to be educated about every single pocket of culture going around going on around the world
0: yeah yeah one more thing i thought was interesting as well from a branding perspective and the difficulty of companies right now is this move away from individual personalities whatever you want to call it. In Nike's case, it is all-star athletes moving away from Michael Jordan, the individual man, to a roster of athletes who are of varying ranks. And that's that's the same movement we've talked about where companies of any sector have moved away from like the one Kylie Jenner or whoever celebrity to working with a host of niche Mm -hmm. influencers and that is a much trickier thing to do Mm. and i empathize with that yeah trying to identify all of the many different leaders or people who have opinions who might tap into these disparate audiences versus just being able to rally around a single voice Yeah. yeah
1: i'm gonna end it off with strauss's last quote his last paragraph that sums everything together and it In some ways, it encapsulates everything that we've just talked about for the last few minutes. Ironically, Nike mattered a lot more in the days when its position was less dominant. Back when it had to really fight for market share, it made bold, genre-altering art. The ads were synonymous with masculine victory. Plus, they were cheekily irreverent. And so the dudes loved them. Today, Nike is something else. It larps as a grandiose feminist nonprofit as it floats aimlessly on the vessel Michael Jordan built long ago. Like Jordan himself, Nike is rich forever off what it can replicate never. Unlike Jordan, it now wishes to be known for anything but its triumphs. Nike once told a story, and that story resonated with its audience. Now it's decided that its audience is the problem. It wouldn't shock you to learn that Carlos hated the new Nike ads I texted to him. His exact words were, I don't want fucking activism from a sweatshop monopoly. He'll still buy the gear though, just not the narrative. Nike remains, but the story itself has run out. Au revoir. From this, do you gather that Strauss himself is sort of this, like, is he is he yearning for the old school Nike, or is he like against the wokeness that brands are now adopting, and and in essence forcing them to change their business or their direction as a brand? I mean, it's hard to speculate, but I think it's also like those are almost two different arguments. Uh, one is like to be anti to to care a lot about the impact of needing to be woke on things you care about. And the other one is just like, oh, it harkens back to the old days. I'm actually not trying to like figure out what Strauss's opinion is, but I think those are the two competing things and you can be on either side, but it doesn't necessarily mean you are against something. If that makes sense. Like you're more, you like, there's something you can fundamentally enjoy and like about the way a brand does its advertisements and how it's so clear and what it's trying to do. But I think that when you, Need to appease and prevent any sort of offense to multiple people, the story can't really exist as this clear and concise thought.
0: I suppose my answer is kind of to pick neither of the options you present, because I would say that Strauss is ruminating that Nike has lost its way and is. Afloat, adrift, not knowing where it's going. But I wouldn't say that he says it has to do things exactly the same way that they used to be done. To not like repeat the exact same playbook because we're obviously in a different era. You have to respond to contemporary times. But I think it's that there could have been an alternative path from the past to now that they made a Long series of decisions along the way that brought them to where they are. Mm -hmm. Because I think it is, I mean, obviously it's easy for me to say and not easy to do. What I'm going to say is that it is easy, it is still possible to look at the current values of this generation and come up with something that could respond to them while maintaining a core of what your brand stands on that's my optimistic idealistic suggestion because one thing i take issue with which you didn't talk about and it's probably a tangent is that Strauss talked about the dust up in nike internally with the um, female employees raising their concerns and he seems to suggest that part of Nike's public-facing efforts, in terms of marketing campaigns, are in response to their those internal issues. Whereas I think that you can resolve internal issues to do with how your employees are treated, with you know fair compensation, with HR that doesn't have to affect your marketing. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like you can treat women fairly as employees and colleagues without that then needing to be your public-facing marketing strategy. But I
1: guess it depends, though, because...
0: My under my understanding is not that these female employees were complaining that, oh, the ads you make are too misogynistic, but that, you know, we are being mistreated by male executives, yeah. right? They're yeah. different concerns.
1: I mean, ultimately, it feels as though it's just going to be a era in which it doesn't mean it can't go back, right? It's more about this is where we are right now. and God, I see it. it just ebbs and flows. like I think every generation might have a different type of concern or a different type of focus, albeit I think the future probably aims to be a bit more a bit more community driven in terms of like coming together to work together to accomplish a goal. We've now seen the impact of only a few winners when we need to develop some sort of opportunity where everyone is winning. I don't say that in some weird way, but it's more like the problems we face collectively now going forward will probably require a mindset that's more of a community-driven approach, right? That that doesn't de-emphasize winning, but changes what are the parameters of winning in a different game. Like obviously, sport is sport, but I think that you cannot discount that the way that a certain culture and society behaves or looks at the world won't influence how it engages in certain activities.
0: I think those are good points. Yeah.
1: Good place to cap things off.
0: Yep. Let's do it. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com.
1: You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon.
0: Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations.
1: I'm Eugene.
0: I'm Sharice. And this
1: is Making It Up.